I'm getting more comfortable with the thought that, no, I'm kind of listening, you know, and, I, and it's listening externally, but listening internally as well. And um, I think that's been the theme of my um, connection with nature. Getting outside more easily and confidently. Connecting to wonder. Taking the next steps in your adventure. Feeling more relaxed, creative, healthy, and alive. This is Wonder Outside. He's a certified naturalist, professional hiking guide, and outdoor educator. Here's your host, Ranger Ted. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Wonder Outside podcast. My name is Ted Madison, also known as Ranger Ted, and I'm here to give you a variety show for nature that'll help you get outside more easily, more often, and more confidently, and engage your sense of wonder. Your sense of wonder. Where did it go? When's the last time you saw it? When's the last time you felt it? When's the last time you lost all sense of time when you were looking up at the stars or seeing an eagle or being exhausted from a hike you've never taken before or trying something new like paddleboarding or snowshoeing? That's what this show is all about. So here's a quick map for you. In each episode of Wonder Outside, I feature my conversation with someone I like to call a wonder guide, someone who has unique insight to offer on the outdoors, someone who gets their inspiration from the great outdoors in their work or in their art. And then like any good variety show, there are several segments within each episode to help you engage your sense of wonder, namely the 3 by 3 Main Street Challenge, where art meets nature with DJ Shark and there's no planet B. And we're also introducing a new little segment called One New Thing. What's the one new thing you're going to try in the outdoors? Let's go. Wonder Outside is sponsored by The Nature Coach, helping you and your loved ones get outside more easily, more often, and more confidently. Go to thenaturecoach.org for your free introductory session. So there was this list I made when I started to dream about this podcast. Who would I talk to? How would I, how would I conceptualize this whole thing? Those people on that list became known as my wonder guides, and Rolf Thompson was at the top of that list. I tracked Rolf down. He's been an important mentor to me, a friend, a positive influence in the outdoors for me, and a positive influence with huge impact on thousands and thousands of people. He's got an unbelievably impressive resume, executive director of so many different places, including Camp Minogen, Camp Wigewagon, Camp Manitou Wish, and the executive director of the National Eagle Center, just to name a few things. And I realize I might have said the word executive director so many times we're visualizing someone in a three-piece suit sitting in a fancy office. No, Rolf knows his way as an expert does around a canoe and a kayak and Birkenbeiner racing and winter camping. And these are just some of the many topics we're going to touch on. And sit spots and cigarettes and, and passerines and warblers and, and grandparent camp. What's grandparent camp? Okay, let's get going. Hi, Rolf. Okay. Hi, Ted. <laughs> Welcome to Stone Lake, Wisconsin. It's nice to be in Stone Lake, Wisconsin. I've come to, is the Namakagan River somewhere near here? Uh, it is. Let's see. It would be about uh, eight miles north. Okay. I had a canoe trip as a as a kid with my church. Okay. 
quite a long time ago up here, but the, I, I've never been to Stone Lake. Yeah. Well, it, the Namakagan is a national wild and scenic river. It's right here in our backyard, and uh, we're just so lucky to be uh, in this this area. We had our grandkids on it uh, two weeks ago. Oh, on that river? Yes. Tubing. Tubing. <laughs> Not in canoes, sorry. But uh, any form of getting down the river is fine, Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, talk about an encounter with nature. Um you know, because CJ and I are lifelong canoeists, and so we were a little chagrined to be going tubing. But right, Ted, it's uh, it's you. You're all about getting people outdoors, yes, sir, in whatever way exactly. they can. Exactly. And here we are in a national wild and scenic river, floating down with our five, ten, and eleven-year-old grandchildren. Yeah. No worries about you know dangerous white water or anything right and the shorelines are wild there uh we see a great blue heron about this close mm -hmm. we see uh, a river otter again this close we see a bald eagle we floated right underneath it um so it, we were we were just really uh pleased with the whole experience there's a difference isn't there between sort of wild at a distance and wilds that's right you're in it when you can be right in it and uh that that was the beauty of this little float trip a three-hour float trip uh down a fairly benign river with a few fast stretches but right very wild so Yes, we're very fortunate to be here uh, in this uh, really beautiful area. Where, where did you grow up exactly again? So I grew up uh, in a suburb of Minneapolis uh -huh. called St. Louis Park. And um, uh, I did not, yeah, I was not at all rural. You know, if you're getting at where where did where did this interest in the outdoors Why do you go start? outside? That's yeah. right. There must have been, was there a moment? Maybe, maybe not. Not always. Probably not one moment. Um, you know, I, I did read uh, your, or heard part of your interview of uh, uh, my good friend, Mark Hennessy, mm -hmm. who used the word adventure. And so I thought about, okay, what's the one word I would, I would use to answer that question? Yeah. And I think it's spirit. Um, and we can talk more about that, yeah. but, um, where, and I've thought a lot about, um, not just thinking about this, uh, talk, but, uh, over my profession, yeah. <laughs> my, my career, you know, why do I do this? Um, and, and how did I get started? So <clears throat> in our room up here, I have a framed photograph of me, uh, as a three-year-old in a snowsuit uh, walking into this woodlot that was right next to our house um, in St. Louis Park. Mm -hmm. And my mom had it uh, framed early on. I mean, I remember growing up with this photograph on her wall. And the story she would always tell me about this photograph of of me in a snowsuit, three year old, yep, like uh, like Vivi, yep, right, uh, was uh, that I would tell her, "Mommy, let's go deep in the woods," 
And so she took this photo of me uh, oh, cool. going deep in the woods. And this is in the suburbs, you know. It right, was just right. a, a, a lot yep. next to us. Yep. And my, my folks, you know, they must have seen something in me because they, uh, they didn't send me, but they asked me if I wanted to go to this uh, Lutheran church camp at the end of the Gunflint Trail in the Boundary Waters mm -hmm. of northern Minnesota uh, when I was uh, in high school. And I did. Uh, I went a couple years, just, you know, fell in love with right. with canoeing, right. uh, with the Boundary Waters. Um, and uh, it was it was just incredible. You know uh, the works of Sigurd Olson. Of course. The uh, uh, conservationist author, mm -hmm. you know, um, environmentalist who... Uh, Died in 1980, I think, but um, and was very instrumental in the Wilderness Act in uh, getting the Boundary Waters preserved, etc. Well, I had a, a chance to meet him uh, in uh, 1976, but before that, before I even met him, th thought I would meet him, uh, my parents gave me this listening point, this mm. book. Mm -hmm. And I just pulled it off the shelf last night. And the inside, it says, To Rolf with love, Mom and Dad, December 10th, 1970. Okay. So this book had just come out. Right. I was a senior in high school. I had been on a couple of canoe trips by then. And so I, I'm thinking they they realized yes. my folks realized that I there was a connection that I was making with this place. So then six years later, uh, I had a chance to meet Sigurd. CJ and I both did. Uh huh. And I asked him if he would sign my copy of Listening Point. Yeah. And so he said uh, he wrote. Dear Rolf and Carol, that's CJ's real name, uh -huh. someday you will find your listening point and know the same deep satisfactions I have known in mine. Best wishes, Sigurd F. Olson, 8-23-76. Wow. So now, you know, you are here in, you know, what I would... I think CJ and I would both consider our listening point. Yeah. And indeed, we have found it uh, thanks to her parents and uh, uh, the legacy that they have provided that we're trying to honor. But, you know, this truly is uh, that place for us. What yeah. else does listening point mean or how maybe the spirit part yeah. that you brought in has part to say in that? Yeah, I think... Uh, yeah, you know, he, and in the book he talks about this, but he called it listening point. And have you ever been there? It is. No. It's preserved to this day. No. You ought to go there. Okay. Uh, it's on Burnside Lake. Okay. Not far from your cabin, uh, outside of Ely. And um, it it's it is a beautiful spot. He called it listening point because he says he he said he would go there to listen not to do do not to work not to get right right 
but it was his place of listening to the wilderness. In those days, it was pretty wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's more like Vermilion with with uh, more motorboats and, yep. and whatnot. But um, anyway, listening point is preserved. It's uh, um, uh, you could go there, and okay. you really should. I can tell you exactly how to get there. So he would go there. He he says to listen, and you know he was a prolific writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not write. At listening point, yep. it was his retreat. But he um, he lived in Ely in a you know classic house, I guess you'd say, and and the writing shack, the as he called it, was where he did his work. Right, was in the backyard. It was this little uh, uh, I don't know what the dimensions are twelve by sixteen. It was it was a small, very Walden esque. Yeah, right. But it was right in the backyard, All right. you know, of of his Ely home. That was where he wrote. But he would go to Listening Point um, to be in the wilderness um, and uh, and to listen. And I think what he meant was, uh, you know, to be filled with the Spirit in whatever way he defined that. Um, and uh, and I think that's my as I've thought back over, um, you know, I, you know, I know Doug Wallace talked about the spirituality mm-hmm. of nature and stuff as mm-hmm. well, and um, and I think that's because I find myself sitting out uh, by the lake here, yep. and you know, you've seen it now. It's not all that dramatic, right? It's not. Whoa! This is knock your socks off yep. scenery. Right. It's just kind of uh, subtle. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, I I find myself sometimes, uh, oftentimes, just sitting there. You know, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and sometimes I think, well, Ralph, you should be reading, or you should be journaling, or you know, you yes. should be doing something. Yes. But I've, uh, I'm getting more comfortable with the thought that, no, I'm kind of listening. You know. And and it's listening externally, but listening internally as well. And um, I think that's been the theme of my um, connection with nature, um, is the uh, listening, the, uh, you know, kind of being filled with, um, you could say it's, part, you know, a mental um, reflection and kind of solving problems at work Mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, which would happen at times. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Sometimes. More, it's it's just, uh, it's a sense of affirmation and uh, a sense of strength to go back to... uh, go back into the cabin to journal or go back right. uh, to read or to do, um, uh, you know, I used to do planning for, for work, you know, but I, uh, it would be after sitting outside listening. It's a great reminder to listen and, and that there's so much expectations on us, no matter where we go, especially in the media, social media age. 
to produce, share, <laughs> write, be productive, be productive, know, time managed, manage, yeah, yeah, and all uh, of that. It's uh, it's really true. A quick little sidebar here. Rolf will speak about his work experience and how he got into these positions of leadership. And it's a good reminder that without good leadership at the top of these organizations, these nonprofits and camps, they're not going to have any impact. They're not going to affect many people at all. So just a quick little preview of that. And uh, did an MBA program at uh, the University of St. Thomas and did that because really I realized, you know, my role now is, is leadership of a, you know, essentially a business enterprise, but very mission oriented uh, um, business enterprise that, uh, that would have, uh, more of an impact, um, more of a mission impact, the better it was run and operated. Right. And, reach- and that was what I needed to do was be as, as uh, you know, good a manager sure. and leader, organizational leader uh, in order to accomplish the mission. Yeah. Which was connecting kids to this, yeah. to nature, to yeah. the wilderness experience. So, um, and, uh, that was, turned out to be a really rewarding career for me. It was I, the right fit. It, it, it truly was. Uh, it, it truly was. Yeah. I was um, very fortunate that way. Why is a canoe a, a great way to go outside? Yeah. Um, Well, it's uh, quiet. It's human powered. Right. Um, it requires at least. Uh, well, there are exceptions, but it requires two people. Uh, yeah. To uh, sure. collaborate. Well, teamwork uh, and teamwork. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's. Um, it's immersive, right? It's immersive in the. It allows you to listen, uh-huh. while, right? While you're, uh, <laughs> right. you're a part of, um, uh, you know, you're a part of the environment you're in, as opposed to, uh, um, as a, you know, as opposed to being in a, in a motorized craft where you're just kind of imposed on the, uh, on the environment. Would you separate it more from a kayak? Would they? Would you differentiate? Like, uh, it's not as. There's a. I mean, there's a different. Well, a kayak can be a solo person much easier than a canoe. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it has a, some of the same features, but there's something different about it too. I don't know what it is exactly. Well, yeah, and generally a kayak. I mean, there are two-person kayaks, but it doesn't uh, require two people. Yeah. Um, and I know there are solo canoes too, and some people love that, but. Um, um, and you know, you've seen, we have both here yep. and we like to do both Yeah. <laughs> the other, the other morning, it was uh, just a classic, uh, calm, uh, this, you know, we were out while the sun was just barely coming up and, uh, first we before took, 6 AM, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was okay. before six, five forty, five thirty. Yeah. Yeah. 
We <laughs> took, uh, we canoed yes. to the end of the lake, the two of us, uh, and came back and then took kayaks and went around the other end of the lake. Oh, you did so canoes and kayaks in the same morning? We did, yes. That's what, <laughs> yeah. Must be a phrase for that, a canoe kayak. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot to work in before breakfast. Uh, yes. Oh, no, you probably had breakfast in between. <laughs> no, we no. <laughs> we didn't. Anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, I like to do them both. But it'd be, uh, it, for an extended trip, I think a canoe is more practical. I want to just talk about the National Eagle Center where you were the director. Right. There are a lot of people in this country who made, they don't have a lot of contact with bald eagles. You and I have seen a lot of more of them here in Minnesota, Wisconsin. Yeah. but. Tell me about the National Eagle Center. You know what? What did you do there? Or more, you know, why are eagles? Why do they need an, a, a center? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a great story, and it's a uh, an American conservation success story. Yeah, um, and uh, the National Eagle Center is in a little town in southeast Minnesota on the Mississippi River, Wabasha, Minnesota. Of all places, mm -hmm. I mean, population twenty five hundred, right? Um, and um, through an accident of geography, I guess um, uh, Wabasha is just is two miles below the confluence of the uh, Mississippi and the Chippewa River. Okay. The Chippewa actually flows not too far from here, but then down uh, through Wisconsin and flows into the Mississippi down there, and because the Chippewa flows faster than the Mississippi when it when the current of the Chippewa hits the Mississippi it drops its sediment load that it's carrying this fast water is carrying and slower water can't carry it anymore that sediment uh has created a natural dam um creating Lake Pepin um, wow, I didn't know. Uh, which you probably are familiar yeah. with. It's the largest, it's the biggest widening in the Mississippi. It's a natural, uh, naturally occurring reservoir almost. Lake um, Pepin is the Mississippi. It is the river, yeah. It is the river, but yep. it's the widest part of that river. Yes, it is, huh. and the entire uh, length of, of the Mississippi. Well, so below... Uh, that confluence, yes. the Mississippi runs faster yes. uh, for a few miles through Wabasha. Hence, the river uh, stays open in the winter months. Uh, it doesn't freeze over uh, very often in Wabasha right. like it does a little farther uh, downriver. And, of course, Lake Pepin freezes over. Right. Um, and... Um, uh, bald eagles' primary food is fish. Yeah. So fish are available. Food is available for bald eagles in the winter months. So bald eagles congregate um, at uh, around this open water in the winter months. Well, Ted, you are maybe old enough to recall that bald eagles. Uh, haven't always been as common and sure. abundant, you know, really abundant as they are now. Uh, right. I wouldn't have seen nearly as many in my childhood in the early 70s on Vermilion as I do now. Right. Right. Uh, and we rarely saw them in the Boundary Waters. Yeah. Um, and um, But 
and they were rare and they were actually on the endangered species list because of a pesticide uh, called DDT. Well, the survival of, of um, eggs actually was very marginal and, yep. and the population was, I think, it was down to the hundreds, hundreds right? of yep. birds yep. in the uh, uh, late 60s, late 60s, early 70s. So, and in, as you said, you never saw them on Lake Vermilion and in the Boundary Waters. This would be in the 70s. Well, I remember, actually, see, we were... We were married in the late 70s, and, and as an undergrad student, I was taking ornithology I heard at the U of M. I heard, hey, you can see bald eagles in the winter down in Wabasha. Ah. So we remember going down there oh, okay. in February. Right. And sure enough, we saw bald eagles. Right. Uh, along the, the shore. Um, and... Uh, the later, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, the community of Wabasha recognized people uh, were coming here in yeah. February, January, February <laughs> of all times, to see these bald eagles. Wow. They're coming from all over the place. And, you know, th there's, we, we, we should do something to encourage this or to, right. you know, there, there might be something here. <laughs> you oh, know? man. So it's an incredible story of the community coming together and uh, creating this entity that eventually had congressional designation as mm -hmm. the National Eagle Center um, and uh, raised uh, a lot of money to be able to build the center that's there now um, and uh, that opened in 2007 before I was there. Right. And... Uh, and, you know, when I was there, had 80,000 visitors a year. 80,000 yeah. visitors yep. go to the National Eagle Center every year in, in Wabasha, Minnesota. In Wabasha, Minnesota. Which is in a Bob Dylan song. Yeah. Uh, the DDT stories in the Joni Mitchell song. Um, when you go and you walk into this National Eagle Center and you're seven years old, what, what kind of cool things do you get to do? Well, first of all, there are live eagles. Okay that are uh, in the care of the, the staff there because they, they're permanent, they have permanent injuries mm -hmm. um, or conditions that preclude them from living uh, on their own in the wild. Yep. Uh, and so um, the National Eagle Center is able to um, uh, care for them, and in return they're able to use those birds as education birds. Yep. So that the visitors can experience, you know, seeing an eagle this close. You see the talons. Uh, you realize how giant those. See the talons. <laughs> see the wingspan. Right. Um, see the, see them, uh, the strength of their neck muscles as oh. they're ripping at uh, the, the fish. So, uh, that's their their feed and uh, and the the thing is Ted that that I I loved as the the director there we had such an opportunity it, you know you're all about connecting people to nature and the outdoors and you know the bald eagle i mean it's a cool bird in and of itself sure it's a cool animal but look what it is in you know na nature history and cultures it's in nature it's uh you know we would 
refer to it as the an apex predator mm-hmm. you know it's uh uh but it's also as opposed to some apex predators that are more uh shy and retiring you know bald eagles sit out in prominent places you know golden eagles sit near the trunk of trees and and on the sides of hills um uh bald eagles will sit very prominently they're very recognizable i mean an adult with the white head and tail um you know anybody can recognize they know you know if you're seeing a bald eagle right uh we saw one on the road here as, sure an hour ago as uh, sure. you're driving up here on your way here yep and uh so people see them all the time and they make that connection you don't have to have a bird book to right. figure out what that is <laughs> you don't have to listen for their call right, right. Like, there's a giant bird with a right white head so that you know that's in <laughs> the eagle in nature in history they're you know the american symbol they were, you know, it was adopted as the national bird or the yep. the the symbol of the U.S. long ago. And in cultures, it's it's so um, important to Native Americans. It's you know, uh, it's the it's the Dakota uh, Indians of Minnesota would say that the eagle as the strongest bird carries the spirit to the heavens and and eagles to um to the native americans are truly sacred creatures Mm -hmm. and i've been to uh, uh, dakota powwows where the uh, um, where if an eagle feather drops out of uh someone's regalia yeah there will be the whole place um uh gets quiet and there is a whole 15 minute i watched the ceremony a whole 15 minute ceremony before they could pick up this sacred bald eagle feather so eagles so that was the opportunity that the national eagle center had is uh it's to connect people and and you know we felt that if people um, were inspired by this magnificent bird, maybe they would be better stewards uh, of the environment. Um, you know, change behavior to uh, reduce their footprint on the earth. Um, mm-hmm. Whatever. Uh, might happen as a result of making that connection, learning something about the biology, ecology, behavior of, of the birds, but yeah. also the connecting with um, with the birds in history and culture. Yeah, that connection point can be a lot of different things, and I think that's the thing I like to sort of highlight, that yeah. you don't know where that connection co- point is going to be, whether it's the, the biology of the bird, that's the right. behavior of the bird, the history the interaction, you know, there, there's so a spectrum of connection points there. And our role isn't to go, you know, know its exact coloring and the way it sounds when it flies. It's just to say, here's this thing. Mm-hmm. Here's That's this right. amazing thing with all this wide, you know, there's a, there's a lot to choose from here. Right. Right. Yeah. So the, the, seven-year-old you know yeah. sees the live eagle right 
um, <clears throat> maybe goes to a uh, a live program mm -hmm. with with a naturalist, mm -hmm. you know, who um, uh, uh, does all kinds of um, you know more biology and ecology stuff, but in a very interactive sort of way, yeah, yeah. um, um, then may tour through exhibits, uh, again, uh, illustrating biology and, but also eagles in history and culture. And it's, is it perched right up there on the, above, above this area? I assume I've not been to the building, so I know yeah, it's pretty well, cool. It's, it's right on the river. Yep. Um, meaning it's, 30 feet up from, from the river, the yep. Mississippi flows, the bar, the barges go mm, up cool. and down right in front there. And, um, and, uh, yeah, you see the eagles up close, you look out the windows and in the winter months, there right. may be dozens of eagles right. out there in the summer. There's, you know, you'll see a couple, I mean, we would see eagles every day. You can see a couple of nests from mm -hmm. there. Uh, it's, it's a dramatic spot. Yeah. Now for the three by three main street challenge, helping you get outside in your own neighborhood. All right. It's time for the three by three main street challenge. This is why I love this thing so much because I started looking for a main street. I started looking for a main street in the international falls area of Minnesota. I landed on a little town adjacent to there called Rainier and in Rainier, Minnesota, Looney's Brew or Looney's Pub is on Main Street, 3481 Main Street in Rainier, Minnesota. And they're on the banks of a big lake called Rainy Lake. Yeah, it's just a big lake, you know, not too big, 360 square miles. Rainy Lake is this gigantic, gigantic lake that meets Rainy River that shares the border with northern Minnesota and southern Ontario. And so what are you going to do when you go to Looney's Brew there in Rainier, Minnesota. Well, their website tells you you can enjoy some fresh brewed craft um, beer because they've got a they've got a brewery there, and they say whether by vehicle, boat, or snowmobile, a, a unique place to stop and take a load off, meet up with friends, enjoy some live music. So if you got your snowmobile, no problem. Um, so we're going to start at Looney's Brew, and we're going to ask ourselves, well, what's three minutes from there? Easy. Cary Park in International Falls, just a little tiny bit south and west. That's where Grant Hartley would start the um, Arrowhead 135 race. And so Cary Park is, there's no official address. It just says Abandoned Railroad. That's what it said on my maps. But it's between 3rd and 6th Avenue, just off of 11th Street. It's a little more than three minutes away, but it is three miles away. So from Looney's Brew to Cary Park, just a few minutes away. And there in Cary Park, what are you going to do? Where are you going to play baseball or softball or tennis or basketball? And if it's the dead of winter, you're going to play hockey and there's an arena there. You're going to play hockey inside, hockey outside. And then if you're a truly crazy person, you're going to start the Arrowhead 135 race like our, um, our friend Grant Hartley. Or you're going to cheer on a crazy person who's going to start their Arrowhead 135 from there. And I'm not saying crazy, don't do it. I'm just saying crazy in a good way. Then we say, well, what's 30 minutes from Main Street in Rainier, Minnesota? Well, it's not even 30 minutes. Voyager, Voyager's National Park 
is just a short 14, 15 minutes away. It's one of the most remote and unique national parks that we have, over 200,000 acres, 55 miles long, um, dark night skies, canoeing, fishing, camping. It's everything you want in a northern Minnesota, southern Canadian feeling space there in Voyagers National Park. So thanks for the national parks, right? And then in the 3 by 3 Main Street Challenge, we say, well, what's three hours from Main Street, from Looney's Brew? Well, either way, man, you can go west or east. Let's go west. It's slightly more than three hours. Let's call it four hours to Lake Winnipeg and the greater area around the city of Winnipeg in Manitoba. So you're going to cross over into another province. And what are you going to find there at Lake Winnipeg? Well, you know, a 9,000 square mile lake. That's as big as Lake Erie. That's just gigantic. So that's a little more than three hours away from Looney's Brew. And but it, you could go the other way. You could head east. You're in the you're in southern Ontario there, and you're on your way to Thunder Bay, Ontario. That's where I went when I was a young camper at Minogen because I hurt my leg, and then I got to go visit Thunder Bay, Ontario, and it was awesome. And you're right there on the edge of Lake Superior. Isle Royal is there, and Lake Superior is just you know, 31,000 square miles. These these numbers are just so big, it's hard to comprehend. But the point is that if you're, if you're already in International Falls, Rainier, Minnesota, everything around you is amazing and incredible and, and worth exploring. So those are my three suggestions. And the first suggestion, though, I have, and for myself, is get get to Looney's Brew, and just hang out there on the shores of Rainy Lake in northern Minnesota, southern Ontario. And that's how we play the 3 by 3 Main Street Challenge. Think about where you are, what's three minutes, 30 minutes, and three hours from you. And you're going to find something really great. And just one very brief program note before we go forward, there will not be an Art Meets Nature segment in this episode. So I hope you don't miss that too much. We will have that back next time in episode 18. And now back to the second half of my conversation with Rolf. I saw you brought a little John Muir book there next to you. Now, does that... Does that have something to do with the spiritual side? Sure. And, you know, for him, it was... uh, um and nature was uh was spiritual right it wasn't they're it the same was, thing yeah yep yeah yeah you know he was raised in the church of scotland and uh um and disciples of christ i think was his father's uh his father was very strict and uh, made him dig a well almost died here yep, in wisconsin yep. yeah i know a lot of those stories nature to him was was spiritual and he was driven or drawn or, uh, you know, to uh, the wilderness and to uh, nature constantly. Um, and, you know, not, uh, and then, you know, Sigurd Olson was very similar yeah. uh, in that way. Um, so there are a lot of parallels there. And I know uh, Sig was very much influenced by Muir as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's another great biography, by the way, uh, the biography of Sigurd Olson, uh, A Wilderness Within, oh, okay. I think, is, yeah. is that one. And then I asked Rolf a little bit about 
the uh, location of their cabin and the kinds of things they do around there? It's not a huge tract of land. Right. We we have 200 and some feet of shoreline, uh, enough, you know, that we'd, we can kind of see the neighbors through the trees. But, right. Um, and then it goes back. Uh, we actually have eight acres of forest back here. Um, and, uh, and I, I always wanted to, um, before I retired, I, I always wanted to spend the month of May. Mm. I'd love to spend the whole year here, yeah. you know, as kind of a bigger sit spot than a, right. <laughs> a, than square, a meter. square meter. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to be here the month of May, Ted, to, to be here for the warbler migration. Uh to be in one place or um, every day in in order to see the changes in the spring, um, particularly with the bird migration. I have a particular fondness and interest in warblers, the little, uh, pa- um, um, I was going to say passerine, it's a songbird. You know, little songbirds, they're very colorful, very diverse okay. subfamily of of, uh, um, songbirds. So it, in a way it's a little, it's a couple acres of sit spot, but I, so I track warblers that I see or hear just on our property here. So, you know, I might see them while, or hear them while I'm bicycling, but I don't count those unless I hear them here. We're about hearing it. Right, rather than seeing it, because uh, they're tiny. They're they're small, <laughs> and uh, uh, you need to be able to to uh, um, distinguish their, identify their songs. It, you want to take a guess on the number of warbler species uh, that I saw in the month of May here last year. Uh, I. Um... 20. Well, very close. 18. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> just on our property. Which would um, be, a l- but I, most people guess what, three? But I've five? seen, I've actually seen um, over the years, I've seen 21 species. Um, and for some reason, I missed three last year. This year, I only saw, I think I had 14 species. But, you know, it's, that's, uh, that's... and they don't all nest here. They're, you know, They're many on of them their way. are on their way to the Boundary Waters yep. or... Uh, or the other or way. Some, no, they're going north. They're always but, going uh, north. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, uh, that's that's been fun. Yeah, my, my bird skills are, are not great. but And then for me, that's i got to remind myself, it's not about that. It's just about starting to listen more, starting to pay attention exactly. more, starting to slow down more. I mentioned this place. Yep. Is this location, this setting is, is kind of subtle beauty. I would yeah, call yeah. it, you know, Talk more about that. It's, um, it's not a dramatic, uh, even like a Lake Vermilion Rocky point, right. You know, it's yep. not dramatic in that way, but, yep. um, and you know, from Mark Hennessy and probably from, from me that Mark and I and two or three other guys have done this winter trip in the Boundary Waters every year for yep. 40 years. And what I love about that is, uh, I mean, the chance to listen and the chance to be with those guys and all that stuff. But 
But I realize that it's the subtle beauty of the the boundary waters landscapes and um the uh and you know this from canoeing and from lake vermilion you know the shorelines the 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 rock features the uh um the bogs you know i mean and um many of us have also done a lot of backpacking out west mm-hmm. and and we um CJ and I would go to the uh, Beartooth Range a lot mm-hmm. outside of Red Lodge, Montana. And over the course of, uh, actually, I was there with my son when when we met this guy. Um, we were there in early summer, so we were hiking through a lot of snow on our way in. And here comes this guy alone uh, walking <coughs> towards us with a pack on and stuff. and And... Uh, it turns out this guy lives in Red Lodge. He's a commercial real estate guy, and he's you know he lives right there. This is like his backyard. Yeah. He had just been out for three days solo climbing one of the eleven thousand foot peaks okay. uh, in the Bear Tooth. And, and my son and I were just kind of in awe of this guy. Yeah. He just was really a great guy. And I could I started picturing him coming on this winter trip with our group of friends. Okay, and I started. Um, and I actually invited him. Yeah. He he couldn't ever come. But this made me think, okay, this guy is used to climbing 11,000 foot peaks mm-hmm. in this incredibly dramatic, yeah. in-your-face kind of sure. landscape. Right. You know, you know the mountains. Of course. And, and the boundary, I wondered, God, would he... What would he think of yeah. the boundary waters? It's wilderness, but yeah. it's so subtle. Yeah. Comparatively. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? Of course. You know. Is he going to get it? Would is he, would he, is he get gonna, it? Is he going to feel like, oh, this is really, yeah. this is really pedestrian, you know? Right. Because, every, you know, his backyard is dramatic and, you know, just like I say, in your face kind of scenery yep, and sure. that, you know, if you, if you'd driven up Beartooth Pass, it, it, it is, I've been over it 20 times and it never fails to right. just boggle me, yep. you know, with its, its drama where, whereas the Boundary Waters is a whole, uh, different experience mm-hmm. and, um, it's not in your face. It's just so, so subtle and yet for me deeply spiritual even more spiritual maybe because of its subtlety i don't know if it's an epiphany but just uh (laughs) observation about um the power of landscapes and the power of um uh place is it it's more i think there's a more meditational side to the boundaries there's a more immersive grows on you Maybe you're even taking it for granted thing that, that maybe you don't understand as you're in it, or maybe even as you're coming out of it. There's just, it's not like going to Tunnel View at Yosemite. It's not like going to yeah. Banff. Yeah. And it's not like these um, souped up uh, Instagram images of whatever of right. someone. Right. Sh- it's, it's almost show offy, the, the right. Instagram things. And, I kind of rail against those a little bit because it it just doesn't have to be that to be rewarding, vital, 
healthy, relaxing, interesting, yeah. educational. I mean, it, yeah. it, it doesn't have to be these 10 out of 10 views. You That's know? right. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of winter and crazy things like camping in the winter, you also do the this cross-country skiing. Is it, do you call it a race? Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. How, it's a race. How it's long time. is it? Why do you do it? So, yeah, we're uh, very close here also to uh, the uh, American Berkabiner trails and, and the, the ski race that, that occurs. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the American Berkabiner is the largest North American ski, cross-country ski race. Um, it was started in the early 70s in Hayward, Wisconsin. Um, okay. Berkabiner is a marathon, uh, a ski marathon. How many it's miles? 55 or kilometers? kilometers, 34 miles. Okay. Um, two years ago, I stopped doing that race. I cut back to the um, the one that's 29 kilometers or 18 miles, partly as a homage to age, but um, partly also just because I didn't want to have to train, train and so much, put so much pressure on myself. Yeah. To yeah, yeah. Uh, ski that far, that much, um, and uh, so how many people participate in that race? Yeah, roughly? well, there between the two races, and and now that you know, there's both skating and there's classic technique. Okay, uh, I think there are ten thousand. Um, okay, overall, and they come from uh, I assume all over the all over world. the world. Yeah, yeah, it's an amazing event. The system of trails here in in northern Wisconsin is world class. Okay, Just, uh, we're so fortunate to have these trails oh, that great. are, uh, you know, they're groomed beautifully for uh, both skating and classic. It's gorgeous. It's uh, incredible sport. The American Berkabiner Foundation is the organization that manages and uh, cares for the trail, does the races. They now have all sorts of events. There's a fat tire Berkey. There's trail run in September. Um, there are a lot of kids events uh, in the win- in the week of the Berkabiner in February. Um, they really see their mission now yeah. as as uh, active, healthy outdoor lifestyles. Okay. Um, they've, you know, much more than simply a cross-country ski race, although that is the um, cornerstone sure. of what they do. Um, uh, it's an incredible organization. I uh, have really high regard for the current executive director, who I know, Ben Pop. Um, uh-huh. uh, he'd be somebody to to talk to, actually. Oh, I could, okay. I could connect you. Great. Uh, Great. He would be fantastic. I'd uh, love to talk to him. Cross-country skiing, as Mark talks about it in his episode with me, is just is like a canoe in some ways. It's immersive. It's quiet. It's yeah. human-powered. It's, yeah. And you don't need a, a ton of money for a lift ticket or any of that extra stuff. Yeah, Mark's done 30 Berkeys now, wow. like 35 or something. And uh, uh, he, he, he still credits me the first one. Uh, he slept in that room up there uh, yeah. with a fire going and uh, the night before and uh, I helped him put on blue clister for yes. the icy conditions the next day. And you gotta anyway. get the wax right, at least you back do. in the day. Yeah. Right? Yep. And then Rolf and I kind of traveled back to that topic of why indeed he does 
the things he does outside and why it's important to him. And these are some recurring themes that I've addressed with Doug Wallace, Mark Hennessy, and others. These same benefits keep coming up as I interview one wonder guide after another. For me, I've also realized, I mean, it's not just spirit, but, and what I loved about the YMCA is the, the triangle, the, the body, mind, and spirit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so any, any, uh, many of my experiences in the outdoors engage all three. Yep. And, you know, skiing and biking and canoeing are this way where, uh, certainly they're engaging the body. Yes. Uh, uh, but but there are also chances to, you know, I'm an introvert, so engaging my mind in a setting like that is is really valuable. And just a few last topics here with Rolf, including Mount Everest, plans for other big adventures, and grandkids camp. Since I was a teenager, I, I've been fascinated by uh, and read all the history of Everest expeditions, at least the early ones, and. Um, uh, and you know, I'm dismayed by the incredible commercialism and mm-hmm. overcrowding and just all that, you know, it's, that's another whole topic. That's Ted the other is, base camp. Uh, most of it's from the other side, right. from the Nepal side. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I mean, that's Still. another whole topic sure. is, is the diminution of, of wilderness and, Pay enough money and then you get helicoptered to the thing and everyone's going to pack all your stuff for you and basically carry up the the mountain. Exactly. Uh, And that's true for will in wilderness areas all over the world. Yep. Uh, And it's, it's, uh, it's, that's another whole topic that's, is sad. Yes. Uh, Let's just say, but um, so Everest, yeah, it was, um, a trip my wife and I took to Tibet uh, two two years ago, um, and so seeing it was kind of a it was a lifetime goal of mine. That, right. What else is on the list of uh, things that maybe you haven't done before, or places you haven't visited before that pique your interest? Sure. You... I told you I'm into uh, bicycling, yep. and I want to do some bike packing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know that. Uh, sport, it's, I mean, think backpacking only with a bicycle. Sounds like you're going to have to sleep overnight somewhere, so you got to have that with you on your bike. Yeah, so you're carrying, just like backpacking, you're carrying all your stuff. Um, a big one that is a big thing uh, these days is the um, uh, Great Divide mountain bike uh, trail, but it's a huge deal it's, you know, think Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, okay. but by mountain bike, essentially along the Continental Divide okay. or, you know, yep. as close as you can be yep. from, um, uh, essentially from Canada to Mexico okay, uh, or vice versa. Um, I just last year got a bike that is built to do that kind of a oh, trip. Cool. Um, so I think I have, need a little more experience before I get to that um, trip. But um, is it a, a month or two kind of thing, or uh, probably a couple months? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at my age, Ted, um, sixty-eight, um, 
you know, you, uh, I'm grateful every day for health and fitness to be able to think about things like this. Right. And, um, I don't take it for granted at right. all that these days this health and fitness will last forever. Right. So, um, creates a little urgency, um, you know, neither of my parents live to age 70. Um, mm. I'm much healthier and more fit than they yeah. were at, at this age. But um, He just knocked on his head there. On yeah. Knocked on wood there. Wood. Uh, <laughs> Who has less body fat, you or Mark Hennessy? <laughs> Let me tell you, between you and Doug Wallace and Mark Hennessy, you know, you're all older than me in different, you know, different <laughs> spans of time. But each of you is just looks thin and in shape and like you canoe or ski or train or walk or hike or bike every day, pretty much. Virtually. Yeah. Virtually every well, day. Well, not virtually. Uh, yes. Yes, we do. Actually, <laughs> Actually. do. Every, all, if not every day, almost every day, no matter the weather. Everything starts with health and fitness and you have to work at it. So, yeah. So, and you just have to, um, you know, we've built it into our lifestyle. Um, they call it functional fitness. You, you work out so that you can do stuff like, you know, CJ gardening yep. or, uh, yep. you know, splitting firewood or going kayaking and, yep. uh, canoeing with the grandkids. So, oh, that's what one. So, last topic here, Grant. Grandchildren camp, grandkids yes. camp. What's grandkids camp here yeah. in your world? Sure. How's that work? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I was YMCA camp director for 20 years. CJ led a uh, lot more trips than I did. She's been to Hudson Bay and been to uh, uh, all over backpacking and canoeing. And uh, um, so we just really... And we raised our kids every summer at Minogen or Widgee, and um, they'll tell us they had epic childhoods as a result. Uh -huh. So we really want to get our grandkids um, as, as, you know, help them have that experience as much as possible. So, uh, and we have this place. Um, so a few years ago, uh, and I mentioned our grandkids are 11, 10, and 5 now. And uh, a few years ago, we started a tradition. Um, uh, we call it Camp Solnagang. Solnagang is what CJ's parents named this place. It's Norwegian for sunset. Okay. And uh, as we told you, the sunset's right across the lake. So, yep. um So Camp Solnagang is our version of a uh, little summer camp at the cabin, grandparent camp, uh, where the kids come. And um, we program uh, a week. Last last year we had a week in the summer and a week in October. Mm. Um, and um, by programming it, I mean we have schedule that we There's try a to, plan. There's a plan. There's... Uh, an MC for each meal uh, that who sets the table and then leads songs and after the meals uh, we do camp campfire each night and somebody's assigned to be the M the master of or the 
manager of ceremonies. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, decide what songs to lead and uh, what we're doing uh, for the campfire, makes the campfire. Right. Um, we have, you know, all sorts of, we have the week planned as far as, you know, canoeing or, you know, swimming or uh, various hikes around um, the area. Or uh, I think I mentioned, yeah, we talked about the uh, floating on the the, yes. the tubing on the river, yes. the Amacogan River. So that was uh, uh, part of a day on Camp Solnagang. So it's all about, you know, connecting those kids to nature, but also to each other and yeah. to us and, you know, building some traditions together as a family. It's a great model. You know, it just, it, it seemed, you know, it's a good inspiration for you to go, well, we're just going to, create our own camp for our grandkids because we love it they need it yeah and um, and actually uh maya who you met um the the older one who's here now with us for for five days by herself yes uh um, on the way up here was talking about maybe going to Camp Minogen next summer. Right. As a 12-year-old. There we go. We're going. Yeah. It's thrilled. You know. Right. Yeah. That's the. Yeah, that would be awesome. So. The habit, uh, the, the the tradition of it, the the inevitability of it is the whole thing. <laughs> I right? hope so. <laughs> hope it's inevitable for him. <laughs> Rolf, thank you very much. It's been a long time. It's really good to see you. And it's great I to see you. Really appreciate having me here to your place, and it's good to catch up on all this stuff. And All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And one little coda here for my conversation with Rolf. That, that conversation took place last summer in 2021, and I want to just update people on how his 2022 went because he did his fourth Cordelopit ski race, which is the same weekend as the Birkenbinder. He did 11 full Berkeys, and then the last four years he's done this 29-kilometer Cordelopit race, still on the same trail in Hayward, Wisconsin. And, um, you know, that keeps him in shape and training, and but it's not as uh, daunting a task as a five- or six-hour nonstop race that the uh, Birkenbinder is. He also did his, what he called the uh, Tour de Minnesota bikepacking trip last summer, 1,700 mile, 28 day self-supported solo bike trip around the perimeter of Minnesota. And so that's incredible. He's still working on that idea of a Great Divide mountain bike uh, trail trip and perhaps in 2023. And he and his wife, CJ, they have a plan to hike around, you know, Mount Blanc in the Alps. So, you know, just run-of-the-mill kind of stuff. (laughs) I would expect nothing less. All right. I really appreciate Rolf's time. What a great treat to be able to hang out with him. So in today's episode of One New Thing, I've got the fantastic Grant Hartley from the great state of Minnesota, from the great city of Minneapolis, talking about his relatively new adventures on the Arrowhead 135 race in northern Minnesota and you've just got to hear it to believe it. And so I guess the best way to describe this and why it's important to this show is that Grant's a regular guy, okay? (laughs) And I think he would agree with me on that. He's a regular guy. 
and he's decided to do this very challenging race. And there's some really interesting insight around that. And that's the takeaway I want people to listen for here. Okay, let's let's go talk to Grant. So, hey, Grant, nice to see you. How's it going today? It's going great. How's the, how's the weather in Minnesota, our hometown? Yeah, you know what? Today was a, another gloomy day, depressing, because I got up to go on my walk. I, I yeah. walk one day and bike the next. So I walked from my house around Lake Harriet. Took me yeah. about almost two hours to do, you know, seven miles, and uh, it was it was cold. Yeah, it's you cold. Know, and, and, and here we are talking late April. Sometimes it snows in April, like Prince said, and we know everyone in Minnesota right now is kind of freaking out because where is spring? Everyone's asking that, right? Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> you've you've got your down vest on right now as I'm looking at you. I do, I do. I was actually cold today. I'm training for, um, in two weeks, I'll do a, what's called a rim to rim. So I'm going to go to the Grand Canyon and start oh, on one, one side and go down and go to the other. And it's me and three other buddies. And um, so that should be about a 15-hour hike. So I'm, I'm, I'm training a little bit for that. Man, then, that's, um, a, that's a big deal. Yeah. And it's kind of a, a, a hiking group. Uh, last year, we, we climbed Mount Whitney in the yes. Sierra Nevada. It's, it's the highest point in the lower forty eight. I've been on that same peak about 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, that was a hard hike for me. It was 18 hours uh, to do in a day. So you did it, you did it from the portal straight up and down. You, yeah. You didn't, you didn't carry a tent. Right. Exactly. Because I figured right. the tent's actually harder because you got that extra weight. Absolutely. Thought, yeah. Who wants to spend the night? Although it'd be fun, but I thought I'm just going to get her <laughs> done, you know? And the same two guys, we did a uh, Kilimanjaro two years ago. And that oh, was, man. that was pretty cool. Okay, speaking of getting it done, you do this crazy race called the Arrowhead 135. Correct. Which takes place, most people would think, at the wrong time of the year. It's the it's the most horrible weather <laughs> possible that you could do a race on a very difficult course. Describe this course. Describe the weather for me. The Arrowhead 135, it, it, first of all, it's a, it's a difficult course to get into. And just a note here, what Grant was really saying is that it's a difficult race to get into because the roster is deliberately um, restricted. So their website says the roster is limited in order to maintain solitude on the trail during the race. And just most recently in here in 2022, 142 people total were allowed to participate in this race. Um, and... You, basically, you start up in International Falls, and International Falls in late January, early February, it's, it's absolutely, usually very, very cold. Below zero um, often. Yeah, well, the one year I did it, it was negative 40 the day before we went out, <laughs> and then the day we went out, it was negative 25. And it was one of those where you take your gloves off for a second or you touch metal and you know you, you're freezing right away. Um, so it kind of had a sense of, of dangerous, dangerously cold. And basically you start in international falls and you can either bike, ski or run. And it's, uh, uh, 135 miles and you go on the Arrowhead trail, yeah. which is an old, I, I, and I'm not, don't quote me on this cause I don't know my history, but it's like an old logging trail. Yeah. Uh, okay. basically, and it's very hilly. And you go on this trail for 135 miles, winding down to Tower. So you're yep. kind of heading south. 
and you have, uh, I think they give you about 60 hours to do it. This last year I did it in 35 hours. Um, 35 hours. You completed the race. And did I see something that something like 70 or 80% of the people who start this race don't finish? Historically, it's right around 50%. Oh my God. Historically. What kind yeah. of, what kind of race has half the people don't even get to the end? Well, you know, that's what the, the race director, um, Ken, he's proud of that. You know, that's, <laughs> a, that's the, the, the whole reputation of the race. It's so right. difficult that most people can't finish it or half the people can't. And that's kind of the bragging rights. It makes it kind of yeah. really cool and right. it makes people kind of want to do it. Um, and so <clears throat> really it's, it depends on the year, how much snow you get. So if you get a lot of snow the night before, that can really hurt you. Uh-huh. Also, um, it can be very cold. And this last year was actually uh, somewhat warm. I think it, I think it was historically very warm, like almost in the twenties. Balmy. The problem was then the snow got like a little mashed potato-ish. So all uh-huh. of a sudden it got really loose, which became hard to bike on. Okay. So and you so do it on a bike. Let's be I clear. On you, a bike. You're not going to run this thing. You're not going to no. ski this thing. You're going to do it on a bike. Right. Which a bike on snow, people are also wondering, what does that mean? How is that possible? And I'm, I have a, a people on snow have a, what's called a fat bike, yeah, which is wide tires, like four inch, 3.5 to 4.5 inch tires. So you let the air out and it's really a complicated, you could talk for hours about uh, air pressure, but basically you're letting out just enough air. So you kind of, you can kind of ride your bike on the powdered snow. So, you know, you, you ride around eight pounds, probably PSI. Um, and so you don't have much, much air in there. So you can kind of float on the snow and go. And then as various times throughout the course, you're letting out air. You oh know what I mean? God. Like, for example, if you're, you're, you're kind of slipping, you're not able to go, you let out some more air, and then you're able to kind of float, you know, and ride on. So it's, you're, People are constantly either putting a little air in or taking a little air out to get the the perfect amount. That sounds really difficult when it's uh, ten below zero. Yeah, yes. So you have to be good. <laughs> you have to know what you're doing. So a lot of these these endurance bikers, especially in in the cold, the cold is not very forgiving. So you can't make many mistakes. Yeah. And so basically, you have to be kind of good, uh, somewhat good on your bike, a good rider, and be able to problem solve quickly. Okay. So that's, I mean, there's so many challenges that you're talking about there, but what got you into this in the first place? Why did you say to yourself, oh, I got to go, I got to go do this thing? I started to feel like life was going very quickly. And uh, I didn't have much time left. Uh, and, and, I, and I just started to think, well, you know, Grant, what's it all about? Is it about trying to pay off your mortgage, you know, save enough money? I mean, what are you really living for? And I started to really, I've always enjoyed traveling. Um, you know, I always tell people when I lived in, in South America, in Colombia, I sold my plane ticket home and took a bus home. Uh-huh. And um, I always kind of enjoyed adventure and doing crazy things. And I always thought, you know, you only live once. It goes quick. You know, try to do everything that you want to do and can. And I thought, I'm 57, but, you know, a few years ago, I started to think, well, if I retire in my mid-60s, I'll be too old to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I thought, I talked to my wife and said, you know, I kind of want to do this Kilimanjaro and 
I want to do some stuff now while I'm still physically able. Yeah. Um, and so that was a big point. So now I've done the Arrowhead three times. Um, and, you know, I, I love nature. I love being outdoors. Uh, I'm not a really religious person, but I'm more spiritual. And I kind of, you know, find, you know, find meaning in, in being outside in nature. Mm. Um, yeah. I really do. And I, and I think that's very helpful for me. And then I love just to be physically active. Right. Um, and so the all just comes together on these rides. You know, you you're out there all alone by yourself, kind of trying to survive, making good decisions. And you have this incredible workout. And, you know, at the end of it, you know, when I'm done, I just feel so good. I can't explain, it, you know. Oh, that explains it all. Right. Yeah, that you right. feel good in the prep for it. You feel good in the even though it's painful. Obviously, there's pain involved. You feel alive and vital and like it's all you know, it's all coming together in this, in this challenge, which did I read right from your sister telling me something about he got off track? You're, are you, is she saying that you might lose the trail at some point or another along these, along this 30 or 35 hours? And what do you do at night? A couple of those, uh, that's two questions, but the one was this, this, um, every year there's a, like a professional rider, that that joins the race kind of like a marathon you know yeah um, somebody comes in from out of town just basically to do the race or a professional and they want to win the race yeah and um there's a there's a some very well-known riders who are very fast and and i'm not one of those i'm more the slow guy who's going to finish last you know which is <laughs> fine with me that's who yeah. i am but these this this professional came in from out of town and there's this other local guy who's very fast and they both took the wrong turn and went 10 miles the wrong direction. Oh and as a result, gosh. as a result, they finished second and third. Um, but it was kind of not embarrassing, but it was a mistake. They just, they just went the wrong way. And so <laughs> it, it, the, the arrowhead trail is pretty easy to follow. Yeah. But as you get tired, yeah. you know, all of a sudden you start to hallucinate and you're not thinking correctly. You're hearing stuff and you're just not paying attention and what I did was it was pretty clearly staked and I wasn't paying attention and I went the wrong direction for about a half mile, three quarters of a mile. And I started to go, wait, this doesn't look right. And I was able to get back on track, luckily. Um, but you do have a, a GPS, a tracker okay. on your bike. Right. So, and, and the way they have this set up is I have my uh, a sleeping bag and I have a, like a bivy and a pad and I have a bunch of food. And I have a little stove. So in theory, I'm like, you know, Rambo, which I'm not. But you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you're out. You can survive in the woods for a I'm couple of days. I'm going to Rambo. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. it, it, if you had to, you could. Sure, you could. And then they could come find you based on your GPS. Right on. And I remember seeing a tracking thing. So your friends and family, can they can kind of figure out where you are as you're going. They're all, you know, huddled around the fire, hoping you're okay. I mean, it just seems like it was a great moment for you to go, this is a crucial time in my life where I can try something, not just a little bit different, but something really more kind of extraordinary, kind of big, kind of exciting. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And and it gave me a, kind of a sense of meaning in my life. Um, yeah. and, and when I wake up, like today I walk, tomorrow I'll bike. And when I get up and exercise, part of me thinks, what, what am I doing? Or why am I doing this? Like, why am I going to go bike 20 miles tomorrow? 
or why did I walk seven miles today? Mm-hmm. And it becomes who you are. And for whatever reason, there's some satisfaction or meaning of, or joy out of uh, exercising and pushing your body to the, its limits. Yeah. And really your mind gives up before your body does. And it's starting to realize all the pain that you can withstand and take and, you know, the endurance that your body can do if you allow it and just getting the joy and satisfaction out of that. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's not for everybody, but right. you know, I, I, I've done a lot of different things like that. And for me, it kind of fits my personality. Yeah. And it, it it's really, it's a really great reminder that we have, we have these limits that we impose upon ourselves that we think are just here at this low level. And, but we have so much more potential and there's so much to find out on that trail when it gets 10 degrees colder, when you decide, you know, I'm going to camp here for the night decision-making you were talking about. And, and now you're going to kind of do the other extreme in the grand Canyon. Cause I mean, you're going to get hot down there at, at the Colorado river. I know you are cause it's really hot today in Los Angeles and that's that's got other extremes that you have to sort of battle along the way too. That's going to be it, interesting. Uh, that's exactly right, and it's usually a mental game. You know, you can plan ahead, yeah, and then you know, and that's super important. But then, you know, when you're out there, it's either hot or cold or rainy or whatever, and yeah, it's really just kind of you know planning and and dealing with it and yeah. problem solving and you know, it's a lot. So much of it is 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 really just mental. Yeah. Well, Washburn hockey player, (laughs) (laughs) you and I grew up putting skates on at the pond and, uh, and the, the outdoors was just always part of our daily life. Wasn't it? It was just what we do. Well, that's a benefit growing up in Minnesota. When you're, when you're doing some kind of an ultra race in the cold, you've, you kind of have an edge on everybody else. So, yep. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you show those people from California. Um, okay, Grant. So what do you got to say in closing? Well, in closing, I would just have to tell everybody that uh, it's limitless. You can do whatever you want, put your mind to. That's for sure. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I really enjoy talking to you today. I really I appreciate it because I, I, I enjoy I enjoy getting out there and, and thank you for for taking the time and having the interest. So I appreciate Absolutely. that. What, what you say is, inspires people. And that's why I want to keep bringing people on like you who are doing these things that people may not consider, not even aware exist. And, and that's, that's the benefit of having uh, a guy who's done the Arrowhead 135 three times now on. So thanks, Grant. Hey, nice talking to you. All right, buddy. I'll see you soon. It's limitless if you put your mind to it. That's what I'm talking about, Grant Hartley. That's what this segment is all about. And doing it in the great outdoors brings all these other benefits. Mental, health, spiritual. And remember, Grant finished that race in 34 hours and 32 minutes. And yeah, he had had to take a nap. He had to go to sleep at night. The people who didn't go to sleep, the top finisher, the top male finisher, Matthew Bosman, 14 hours and 22 minutes to to bike 135 miles in the snow. First female finisher, Kate Coward, 17 hours and 42 minutes. Seems like her last name would be antithetical to what she did out there on that race. Incredible stuff. 
And we can all take a lot of great inspiration from that kind of adventure. I found some plastic and we're going to put it in the trash. Actually, I found a lot of plastic. Updates on the planet and something you can do right now to make a difference. So it took me a little while to figure out what do I want to put in No Planet B segment this time. And I've been on the freeways a lot and it's been stressful and there've been there's plenty to be concerned about and worried about. And uh, I'm missing my hikes and getting to some more remote areas. So I landed back on the advice of Rolf Thompson and Grant Hartley. Some solitude, some time away, uh, some listening is good for the soul and for the spirit. So that's brought me right back to Sigurd Olson and Listening Point. And here's a little quote from Sig. He's talking about the location of his listening point. As I sat there on the rock, I realized that in spite of the closeness of civilization and the changes that hemmed it in, this remnant of the old wilderness would speak to me of silence and solitude, of belonging and wonder and beauty. And then skipping ahead, I named this place listening point because only when one comes to listen, only when one is aware and still can things be seen and heard. Everyone has a listening point somewhere. It does not have to be in the north or close to the wilderness, but some place of quiet where the universe can be contemplated with awe. So that's my No Planet B segment. And, uh, Thanks for listening. And that is a wrap for episode 17. Boy, it feels good to get that one out of the gate, and we are moving forward. Thanks again to my wonder guide, Rolf Thompson. Thank you to my uh, One New Thing correspondent, Grant Hartley. And thanks, of course, to Todd Stanton for the voiceover, as always. We will be back in a couple weeks with some brand new insights and some great conversations with more wonder guides going forward and you know if this means something to you if this was helpful let me know drop me a line go to rangerted.net or go to wonderoutside.org and i'd love to hear from you if you got suggestions happy to accommodate all right you guys take care and we'll talk to you soon bye-bye